Welcome to Atlas, the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society. We are in the battle for the soul of this nation. I kept my promise. I sort of hope it's him. I accept this nomination. We will again build the greatest economy in history. Show up and vote. You will determine the outcome of this election. Vote, vote, vote. the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society for our US election broadcast. Um, I am here today. I'm Georgia Potter. I'm the comms officer at Myas. I'm here with President Ryan Attard and socials officer Imogen Kane. Um, we're going to be your hosts today um, as we bring in all the latest news and discuss the US election. Um, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Um, our broadcast is being held, um, at least for us, on the lands of the Kulin people, and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, I would also like to pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be watching today. Um, sovereignty was never ceded. Um, we are very excited. We've got lots that is coming up today. We've got three live special guests, but also um, we've done recordings with three other guests coming up. Um, as the news comes in, we'll try and bring it to you and discuss. We've also got a team of students who are going to be joining us. Um, as you can see at the bottom, we have some polls closing at 10 o'clock. Um, if you want, would like to ask any questions or submit any comments, please do it below on the Facebook stream and we can respond to them, especially when there's guests too. If you want questions for the guests, any comments you would like to make, please comment below and we can try and um, get to them. Um, the other thing we would like to mention is um, uh, Myers is deeply saddened by the news from a few days ago about uh, the killings in at Kabul University. Uh, we, <laughs> it was really awful. It's uh, you know really awful crimes that's been committed. Um, we've been working with 
Afghan for progressive thinking and a lot of um, debaters and students from Kabul University and we were really deeply saddened to hear that um, three of them were lost, their lives were lost um, from APT but as well as numerous other students and people at Kabul. Um, so we want to um, just, you know, show some solidarity with um, Kabul University, with Afghanistan, with Afghans for progressive thinking because it's such a rough time at the moment. Um, yes, I think that's it. Uh, how are you guys going? Are you guys excited today for this election? Are you a bit nervous? What What are our, um, you know, just predictions on the presidential race? What do you guys think? So, I'm a bit I'm a bit hesitant after 2016 and the last few years have given us a bit of inaccurate polls before. I do say anything. I think I just want to reiterate what you said about Kabul University and, um, and terrorist attacks there. Um, I do pay respect um, and I do pay condolences to the families and friends who've worked with APT, the Afghans progressive thinking a lot this year. Um, and this is a true tragedy. Um, so our, um, my thoughts and my prayers um, and condolences do go out to them all. Um, but in relation to the election, um, I think 10 o'clock, when 10 o'clock comes around, we will get some indication um, and, we'll see, and we'll see how big some margins in the counties are. And I think from an Australian perspective, just because we haven't dealt with this too much, if, when you look at particular counties, it can give you a bit of a gauge in regards to how the rest of the country is going. Because if it's usually a Republican county, and it goes Democrat by a strong margin, or if it's usually Democratic County, but it's got a very small margin compared to what it usually has, you're going to have a bit of an idea how the rest of the state or even the region is going to swing. Um, so I was hesitant last night to make a prediction, um, and every, all our guests can attest to that because I did not put a vote in. But soon enough, I'll show you what I think the predictions are going to be, and I'm going to give you two predictions based on our first results. But what about yourself, Imogen? There's something exciting about watching history being made or history in the making. I think it's really interesting to be alive at this point in time. Um, this election will be really important for not only the US going forward, but for the rest of the world on so many different topics um, now that require global solutions. So I think for that reason, I'm excited, but also equally nervous about what's going to happen today because it will um, certainly set us on a course for the future decade and beyond. So let's, yeah, let's get stuck into it. Let's see what happens um, yeah. and yeah, watch history being made. And I do also want to echo the sentiments that were raised by Georgia and Ryan regarding condolences for the attacks at Kabul University. Um, no one should ever have to go through that, especially um, just because of you wanting to get an education of all things. So um, there's a lot going on there and we send our love to our friends um, at Kabul University and in Afghanistan more broadly. Yeah, 100%. Um, Imogen, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rundown, we have some excellent things planned ahead today. We also have our AGM today at 6.30. If you go to Facebook and go to the event, we'll be posting the Zoom link there. Um, we also uh, have a little social action after, which will hopefully be a good time just for you to debrief and have a chat with your Myers friends. Um, but Imogen, could you give us a little rundown of some of the things you've got planned for today? Sure. So. Um, for those playing along at home, we do have an election pack 
that has been posted on Facebook in the event. This election pack contains a bunch of things, uh, including recipes that are election themed, so to give us all stamina throughout the day. Uh, it does have a colouring in sheet, um, which isn't quite as glorious as the one behind Georgia, but it gets pretty close. So everyone can colour along as um, the results come in, which is exciting. <laughs> and also we have um, some fun facts for uh, some history nerds out there as well as the all-important bingo, the Atlas bingo. So throughout the day, listen in, uh, see if you can make bingo with um, the, the various options in the bingo chart. And there's a special prize, election-themed prize, for the person that gets bingo first. So if you get bingo, take a screenshot, send it through to us, and you'll get the special prize that I might uh, reveal a bit later just to keep everyone interested, to be a bit mysterious. And uh, yeah, just, just get involved, everybody. It's, it's a bit of fun. We've got to make a bit of fun out of this. Um, but also definitely come along to the social event. That's after the MICE AGM tonight. Uh, it'll be a good opportunity to chat about what's happened throughout the day, to, talk, to give a little debrief about the AGM, but also just to, to catch up with your MICE pals. I think it's been quite a year and I think a nice social event to, to seal it off would be a great way to, to see, see this out. So lots of exciting things happening um, that hopefully everyone can participate in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so definitely come along this afternoon. Um, Ryan, would you like to start us off with, we, I think we're all interested to see your predictions because you've shown us a bit, we've talked about it a bit, state by state, what do you think is going to happen? So we've got the first poll closings at 10 a.m. I'll do a screen share in a moment. But like I said, when we get those first few poll closings, we might have some little indication. So the first six states to close in their entirety, and actually I lie, some polls have closed, but not the whole state has closed. And um, the media usually do not make, a and we're not the media, we're students. I just need to state that. We, um, <laughs> but media outlets do not make a prediction until all the polls in a state are closed because they don't want to influence the state. So um, we've got polls in Georgia, Indiana, Kentucky, South Carolina, Virginia and Vermont closing in 19 minutes. Um, very strongly that Vermont will go, a state like Vermont will go to the Democrats, Virginia will go to the Democrats, um, Indiana will go Republican, Kentucky will go Republican, South Carolina will go Republican. The interesting state there is Georgia, um, and that's because um, it is a swing state at this election. It can go Democrat. It has been reliably Republican since 2000. Um, so since the start of the millennium, it's been Republican. Um, but I will go through the prediction, and I will do a share screen. Um, and we don't do share screens too often. So if something happens, um, please forgive me. Give me one second. There is, there's bound to be a stuff up, text stuff up, but that text stuff up happened within the first 12 minutes. Um, okay. So for all those playing along at home, there's a website called 270 to win and 270 to win is one of the best tools. And the reason it's called 270 to win because you need to get 270 electoral votes to win the election. 
So if we look at the state, and this is what my prediction is, if Biden has a fairly good night, he will get, the Democrats will get 350 electoral college votes to 188 for the Republicans. That's if Biden has a good night. He'll win, he'll flip a state like Arizona, which has been Republican. Um, I think Bill Clinton was the last Democrat to win it in 1996. He'll flip Georgia. Bill Clinton was the last Democrat to win it in 1996. He'll take North Carolina back. He'll take Florida. He'll take the second district in Nebraska. So Nebraska and Maine give their electoral votes based on congressional district and they apportion them. It's not winner takes all. Uh, he won't win. I don't think he'll win the likes of Iowa and Ohio. It's just it's narrowed up in recent days. We need to factor in postal votes. He's still in with a chance at it. Um, but if he won a state like Ohio, that would be a huge loss to the Trump campaign, even a state like Iowa. If it is a fairly, if it isn't, if it's a closer election, so Donald Trump actually does better than everyone thinks, um, but it's still a Biden victory. We'll see him lose Georgia, we'll lose Florida, we'll lose North Carolina, and we see that then shrink down to 290. Donald Trump's election rests in the Rust Belt. For him to have any chance of winning this election, he needs to win Pennsylvania, and he needs to keep the second district. That leads to a tie which if you've ever watched a lot of American sitcoms or dramas, they always throw an electoral fine there. But he needs to then win a Michigan or a Wisconsin or even not lose Arizona. So should Biden only gain two states, get two states back, not good enough. He needs to get the whole rough belt. He needs to get some other combination. So... If Biden has a fairly decent night, Biden has a fairly decent night, he should be looking at about 350, which is a huge electoral victory, bigger than Obama's in 2012, not bigger than 2008, but I'm hesitant to say he'll get there. I'm very hesitant because I don't, it's been hard to gauge the electorate this year. So um, that's my prediction. Not really an exact prediction, but we'll have a close one when we start seeing the polls come out. Um, so, what do you all think? What do you think is going to happen in regards to the election? It's a big question. Um, it's a really big question, but Georgia and Imogen, what do you think is going to happen? I think the biggest thing for me today is going to be um, the legitimacy of the election. And that's why, you know, we could very well not have an official result by the end of today. Um, I, I think my prediction is is that Biden wins. I think I'm trusting the polls this time round. Hopefully they, you know, are correct this time. But you know, even if they're not, I, I have a, I feel like Biden will win. Um, but it is that question of I think he needs to win by a lot for there to really not be no question of legitimacy. And even then, I think Trump will, you know, make some claims. Who knows if he's, you know, what he'll do to protect. Um, his office. Um, I don't know how much he'll win by Biden. I will have to wait and see, but that's where I'm sort of thinking at the moment. He needs that strong mandate, doesn't he? He, he needs yeah, to absolutely. prove it. Yeah, he needs to prove it. How about you, Imogen? Yeah, especially with all of the discourse regarding not only fake news, but the 
corruption of postal votes that has been circulating and, and the distrust in the mailing system. Um, I definitely think if it's not a landslide victory towards Biden, um, Trump supporters will be questioning the legitimacy of this election because that's been sort of the discourse um, leading up to now, which is unfortunate, but that's, that's where we are. Um, I, however, don't think it will be a landslide. I think it will be a bit closer than that. I'm hesitant to trust the polls. However, they have amended the way they make the poll data at the moment um, compared to 2016. However, just the cynic in me is a little bit hesitant to trust them outright, um, despite what I want to be true. So <laughs> I think it will be close. And I'm curious actually to see the aftermath of this election. Yeah. I think the 290 is more likely and if it gets to 350, they're going to be they're going to be squeaker elections in most states. They're going to be so close. Um, like a state like Georgia, if he won Ohio, it would be a very slim margin. It would be contested. There would be recounts, and it wouldn't be declared for weeks. Um, but yeah, um, and you can and you can sort of see that as well based on where the candidates were campaigning over the last two days. They were in those key states. They were in. They were in the key swing states. You know, they were in. There. I think Joe Biden finished in Pennsylvania. He's now back home in Delaware to follow the results. Um, Donald Trump was all over the place. Jill Biden was in Florida this morning. Um, Kamala Harris and her partner were um, her husband. Sorry, they were in the Rust Belt as well. So the Democratic Party has the Democratic candidates have really been trying to get that swing vote and even Donald Trump. Donald Trump this morning was in Arlington just across the just across um, from Washington DC and he's been traveling across to different swing states. He um he sort of gave a two finger salute to Joe Biden because he went to Scranton, he went to Biden's hometown. Um really rubbing it in on rubbing it in. But um, the candidates aren't like there's not much to campaign for now. There are shots of Biden doing his final little bit, and Donald Trump giving the crowd "We Make America Great Again" at, at a very crowded rally. Um, even Kamala Harris, as well, has been um, obviously out campaigning so she can become vice president. Um, I always like I, 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 this photo. I don't know. I think he was trying to give her a fist pump. Um, Biden with Lady Gaga last night um, in Pennsylvania as well. Um, but there's one really interesting photo I want to show you both just before we move on. And this is Donald Trump in Arlington at his headquarters. Um, Donald Trump did something I didn't expect of Donald Trump here. And I don't think anyone expected. He essentially he essentially said um, it's like very hard to lose. Um, I always forget the exact text, exact quote. He said, "Losing is never easy. Not for me, it's not." What's he trying to imply here with this photo? Is he telling us he's going to lose, or? What do you what do you what do you all think? Because he's got some sort of inkling he might be out going out. 
That would surprise me. I, I don't really think that that's possible. So it is, it, but it is interesting. Like, it, I don't know what the um, strategy is here. Is that he trying to, you know, like garner sympathy um, so that, you know, if he does lose, they they back him when he fights and goes, oh, I'm not sure that, you know, I have lost you and all that sort of stuff. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure if it's a final push to sort of freak out Trump supporters uh, into voting. Um, that could potentially be one reason for it, unless he's just had a bit of a change of heart and has thought, oh, maybe I haven't quite got this and I'm going to step down, which would be slightly different from what we've seen in the last four years. Um, it might be a welcome change. <laughs> that's what, and that's what Georgia and I were talking about. I made a bit of a comparison before we started the live stream to Hillary Clinton in 2008. She had just lost the Iowa caucus. She had just lost the Iowa caucus. Um, she went to New Hampshire and she and she had tears. She had tears, and a lot of the voters felt sorry for her. And she won New Hampshire primaries. Um, but yeah, so we've got we have got we've got an interesting um, day ahead of us. I think just one more photo I just wanted to show, and this is a very touching one. Um, and this is Joe Biden actually going to visit his son's grave, and I I think it's just extremely touching that Biden at this time, day of the election, has gone and seen his son. Because um, he's probably in his mind. Um, Bo Biden himself was seen as future presidential material, like a future candidate for federal office. Um, but yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Very touching. We've got a comment um, from Lucy which I have to say, I do agree with like, her concerns, uh, that my understanding is that in 2016, people were pretty sure the Dems would win. What makes this election different? I think that's a very legitimate question. I hope, my hope is that the Dems have learnt something, that the people taking polls have learnt something from 2016 and know how to actually get a cross-section of the community and more be more accurate. Um, when taking polls, um, but you're 100% right. If we were so certain in 2016 and that didn't happen um, for the Democrats, um, if there is a very legitimate question of why is it different? And my hope is that we've learned, but we, that's a hope. That's not a guarantee. Yeah, I, I think they've learned. I think the pollsters might have learned. The polls weren't that off in 2016. A lot of people say they were. A lot of them were in the margin of errors. It's just we ignored the state polls. I have a feeling we're doing that to some extent in this election as well. Pennsylvania only became more relevant towards the end. We should have been looking at it a lot more closely ever since the second slash third, whatever we're going to call it, debate. Um, I think that made it a bit more problematic. Um, but yeah, I think... They ha I think the Democrats have learnt because they just got too big-headed in 2016. Um, and I think they've all sort of admitted that now. But don't know. You know, I, I don't know the internal operations of the Democratic National um, Committee. I don't know how they're, what they're thinking at the moment. Imogen, what do you think? Do you think they've learnt their lesson from 2016 or do you think there's still a bit of arrogance there? Um, well, I certainly know they're not slacking um, as it comes to this final push. Um, they haven't eased the pressure off their campaign. They've been going hard at it, just like Trump has. So 
they definitely think that there's a fight to be won. Um, we can see as well that all of the funding that's gone towards the Biden campaign has shown that everyone believes that there is need for a bigger push. Um, he raised a lot more money, I believe, than um, what Hillary had and a lot more compared to the Trump campaign this election. So at least that sort of gives an indication that supporters of the Democrats believe that this is an election they really need to get behind. Um, and when noticing the rhetoric as well, it's a battle for the soul of our nation. Um, things like that, it's, you know, the election of our generation or our lifetimes. And that sort of, I don't believe I remember hearing that in 2016. So there's a change in rhetoric saying like, it's now or never everybody, um, we have to do this. And I think the, the fact that Trump won it all, like I hope is a, is a good lesson. The fact that everyone sort of wrote him off and were like, nah, it's a bit of a meme, it's a bit of a joke. It won't really happen though. And then there we were watching the results come in and he had won. And I think that pure shock and, oh, I didn't realize that if I didn't vote, that that's what could happen, um, hopefully has resonated with people still and has been reignited again um, four years later. And that's why we see record turnout in voting. Um, the fact that there's lots of mail-in votes also gives me some hope because uh, we can assume a lot of those mail-in votes are coming from, oh, there you go, uh, as the number below me says, that's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. And we can assume a lot of them are on the Democrat side since the Trump side is, is um, questioning the legitimacy of those um, ballots, as well as the whole concept of not lining up and voting on the day due to COVID, which tends to be more of a Democrat issue as well. So with a few of those things, I think some lessons have been learned. However, I don't think we'll know until this is over. I am um, just as a bit of a follow on, Donald Trump in 2016, and this is my own personal opinion, so if anybody wants to challenge me on it, feel free. He campaigned a lot harder than Hillary Clinton. On his last day of campaigning, the amount of states he visited was incredible for somebody his age, like somebody that old. He wasn't, he was 69 or 70, I can't remember. Um, it was incredible effort. Even this year as well, Donald Trump had just had COVID-19, the amount of states he's visited, the amount of stops he's had, it's been it's been a lot. Joe Biden has been largely quiet this year, but maybe that's what his campaign's about. You know, you don't want to hear about the president the whole time. You know, you don't want to talk about me every day, do you? Um, we never used to do that in you know ten years ago. We never used to do that ten or twenty years ago. Um, but also, the Republicans dropped the ball a bit, and I know it's hard to say that, but they had no new party platform for the first time in I think around 100 years for this election. So there was no message. And the Democrats didn't have a clear message. I think they were, it was very difficult. And Biden sort of got unstuck with that with his comment about oil. Um, so we sort of, um, I think we're stuck in a bit of a bind there, but I think the policy thing for Trump, like he campaigned hard, but he sort of dropped the ball on that. Um, so Democrats are at least trying a bit more. They're not just bagging Trump the whole time. They're actually talking about substance. Um, mm. But yeah, we are. Yeah, we actually definitely. are nearly, also nearly heading to ten o'clock as well. Ooh, I just cold. wanted to say, um, sorry, just to cut you off there. Um, I have heard a lot of people say as well that this election has been either you vote for Trump or against Trump. It's not necessarily for Biden, 
which I think might explain the quietness from the Democrat campaign. They were sort of, Donald Trump was doing their work for them for a bit there. So they just sort of held back. They didn't want to make things worse. So they just let him help them out in that sense. Um, will that be strong enough though? Again, is another question, but very good points raised there, Ryan. So I think we're about to, we've got about 45 seconds for the polls the polls because I thought I'll just give a very very quick overview this election is not just about a presidency it is about a senate a house of representatives and about good and about um governor races so there are 13 governor races up for election this time around um 34 senate races and 435 members of the house of representatives the house of representatives is most likely going to stay democrat 538 which is a very significant pulse that have given them over a 96 percent chance um and the senate can easily flip there's just a few key seats that we need to watch um and the gubernatorial races aren't as consequential there are much more smaller races but we won't be covering them here um so are we all ready to see some poll closing yeah okay. let's go Okay, so we're ready to hear them out. And we have got poll, there are poll closings and they're just very slowly coming through. So in relation to the state of Kentucky that will go to Donald Trump and that will go in the Republican column, the state of South Carolina will also go in the Republican column state of vermont will go in the democrat column along with uh the state and it's too early to call the state of virginia but highly likely it will go um but again it's too early to call in the state of georgia it is also too early to call and that most likely will change to too close to call and indiana is i believe too early to call that might change very shortly but it'll most likely go republican as well so to discuss these results with us we have a few special guests. So we will now add them into our lovely stream. And I believe Shalja, we might have lost her. Um, but hello, good to see you all. Hello. Hello. So, Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure to join you guys all talking about you know, this is the permanent radio broadcast on the US election. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Mm -hmm. You got a call from CNN, but you turned it down. Yeah, no, and the BBC called me back as well. And, you know, but yeah, I'm really trying my best here to put my priorities where they should be. Okay, so what do we all think and how, just generally, what are your predictions for this election? What do we think will happen in relation to it? So, Shalja, what do you think? What's your prediction? To be honest, I'm I'm a bit of a pessimist uh, when it comes to this election. Um, I've been burned once before uh, in 2016. So I have a feeling that 
Trump will declare, declare himself president uh, or the winner of the race at the earliest given opportunity and that the media will just sort of bow down to it, sort of like the Al Gore situation that happened before, I think in 2000 and was it four? Um, so I have a feeling that even if he doesn't necessarily win or if it's a really muddied result, um, we might see a Trump victory or it'll be a really muddied result and we won't know for months and some people will continue to act as if they're the president even though they may not necessarily be so yes okay what do you think Gus? i think um <clears throat> i think the best uh the, the likelihood uh, biden has the greatest likelihood of a victory um uh, uh uh, all, all the modeling shows Biden has uh, a, a substantially larger uh, path, many more pathways to victory than Donald Trump. Um, and uh, of course, um, everybody's been talking about it. And I'd imagine you'll guys be talking about it throughout the day. But Florida will be the state to watch because if if it leans Trump, then we know we know for certain that Trump definitely has a pathway to victory. Um, if it leans Biden, though, then it's um, there's very little, uh, very little scenarios where you can see sort of Trump going through um, through the road to 270. Um, and just because of that, and uh, I know you guys were talking about how how this year is different from 2016 in regards to polling and all that and there was a recent article in the atlantic um and the biggest and biggest difference was of course that there's a much more wider margin um uh between biden and trump than there were between clinton and trump um and so the um even accounting for the margin of error there's yeah there's much more certainty than there was four years ago yeah um i'm also going to quickly shout out i did stuff up the timing and i think you were all looking perplexed thinking why the hell has he done this um so the polls actually closed at 11 and that was a big stuff up on my part um so scratch that um the polls will be closing in 55 minutes <laughs> There, there, there has there's bound to be a start there's bound to be a stuff up this is just a big timing stuff up um which I, that bingo chart everyone keep an oh eye yeah on. <laughs> well, there's a free i think there's a free strike stuff up for me and there's been one tech stuff up by me already um but i it also gives us more time to just discuss before the first polls close in general um so where do you think the election will come down to in general do you think there's a particular state that you know we should be watching is there something that you know is there a particular county? Is there a particular region? What do you, what do you, what's your interpretation of this? I think um, Florida would be a really interesting one to watch. Um, I think because of its older population and because of its racial makeup, um, it does tend to lean conservative. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how that works out as well. Um, also another interesting state to look at, I think, is North Carolina um, in terms of its one. I think that traditionally votes red 
um, and blue and it flips. Um, and that will be a key seat for Biden to also have a look at. Uh, but those two, I think I've got my eye on. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happens in Florida in particular. One poll, um, the Sabato um, crystal ball poll actually said that Biden will win Georgia, that's their prediction, but he will not win Florida. Mm. Which the last time a Democrat did that was again Bill Clinton in 96. Um, so there might be a lot of similarities to that map in that region. Clinton did also win a few states. I do not think um, Biden will win. I can't see Biden winning Tennessee, for example, in Kentucky. That definitely will not happen. Um, but yeah, we might actually see something heading. Um, you know, focusing that Georgia and Florida area. How about you, Gus? What do you think? What state should um, what are you glued to? Uh, there are really only a couple of key ones that everybody's you know looking out for. Um, well, of course, we've talked about Florida, um, and then of course there's Pennsylvania, which um, hadn't really had much interest only until about a fortnight ago. Um, and um, I was uh, I was listening to the the daily podcast from the New York Times yesterday, and um, uh, the one of the scenarios they played out played out was that if if Trump loses Pennsylvania's electoral votes, um, and he wins everything else, he'll still lose, and and so Biden is on the defensive. Sorry, Trump Trump is on the defensive game here. Um, where he, he needs to desperately hold on to everything he wins. And of course, um, uh, there's Arizona in the West. Um, Arizona and Nevada are both um, both toss-up states um, from, what I, from what I understand. And so um, the, the polls in Arizona show uh, are encouraging, um, but of course, we'll have to wait and see later in the evening. Um, well, they've also got a good. They've also got an interesting Senate race that we should be watching. In of Arizona. course, yes. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, Arizona's got an election. Um, so, Martha McSally was chosen to fill the seat um, vacated by John McCain when he passed away. Um, that seat's now up for special election, and she's going up against Mark Kelly and Mark Kelly's actually actually the husband um, of former Congresswoman Giffords who who was shot um, and subsequently retired from Congress because of it. Um, he's a former astronaut, he's favoured to win the seat. But also she lost a previous Senate election to the other, se the other senator for Arizona um, only two years ago. So I don't know what the mentality of the Republican Party or of the governor was putting the loser of that election in the Senate seat because she might actually go down in history as one of the few or if the only person to lose two Senate elections in two years after being chosen to fill that seat. Um, but we are joined by Frankie now as well. And Francesca, I'm sorry, I could not see you and that's why I could not add you to the link. Um, but welcome. Um, What's your thoughts on what's your thoughts on the um, the state of the race, and what do you think will happen? It's going to be an exciting one, isn't it? Um, 
yeah, it's it's. I'm unfortunately optimistic that that Biden will pull through. Um, I think if COVID had not occurred, Trump would probably be in a much stronger position than what he is. Um, just given that history shows us when the economy is performing well, people typically just vote for the incumbent. Um, with the economy in disarray with COVID, it'd be nice to see. It'd be interesting to see if his messaging and, and his, I guess, spinning of, of the situation has helped his campaign in the form. Um, but yes, I think, I think it's a very interesting one. And, and I think you said something line earlier, which is very important. We can't lose sight of the fact that there's also the House and the Senate that's for certain seats there that, that are up for um, election because, you know, as we all know too well, Barack Obama was president for eight years, but his, his effectiveness was, was utterly, you know, um, limited by the fact he had a very non-compliant Senate. Um, and, and even, you know, with, with the contrast between appointing a Supreme Court judge in 2016 versus the three we've seen appointed under Donald Trump, you can see how powerful it is um, when you have a Senate in your court. So, very interesting race in today. Yeah, the, the Senate races are huge. I think people forget about it because if Biden becomes president as a Republican Senate, his presidency, he's, he can be a lame duck president. He can essentially be a lame duck president. He can be powerless for the first two years at least, if not the whole term. Yeah, and I think, Frankie, you touched on something really important, which is um, the impact of COVID. And I really do think that that is a crucial factor. I mean, not only is it, you know, second time round, so already I think the Democrats knew that they really needed to push. Um, they, you know, learnt and hopefully have learnt their lessons from 2016 and know what they need to do to change. But I really think the contributing factor is that we're seeing, you know, so many deaths, um, so many cases in the United States. And you've got a tr president who has just not been there, who is, you know, telling people to inject themselves with bleach and, you know, all this irresponsible stuff. And isn't, is just, I think, not taking it quite as seriously as, and I understand the need to not like create, to cause a panic, but I don't think that, you know, the president's role is to act on this and i really think that is where um a lot of hopefully a lot of people have been inspired to vote because of that because they're seeing the very real very unfortunate very sad reality of what COVID has done and mismanagement of COVID has been done we um we have a comment in the chat from edward uh, and he's asking whether the electoral college um should be removed so who would like to start us off with? What does everybody think about the electoral colleges? And it's the discussion that always comes up and with Trump winning the electoral college but losing the popular vote in 2016, it was it just reignited those topics. But what are, what are general thoughts on this? Should we get should the United States get rid of the electoral college or should they have a different maybe a slightly different system or should it be kept? The college was useful at the time it was created, right? Um, unfortunately, times have changed and it no longer serves the purpose that it used to. Um, when it was first created, there wasn't anything like mass media. There wasn't things like large ways to broadcast information. So when it came to selecting a president using having an informed vote, 
Um, it was really difficult for people, you know, out in the country or away from the capital to make a decision that wasn't formed. And so the Electoral College was formed in that way that they put people they trust into that decision-making position so they can choose a president. Um, however, now, um, as a result of the fact that it is structurally unfair and overrepresented states, um, and furthermore, that the states it chooses or it does tend to overrepresent are majority white, um, there are some <laughs> challenges with the college as it currently stands. Um, and I do think it is time for it to, if not um, abolished completely, um, definitely reformed. Um, what does everybody else think about the electoral college? Maybe Gus, what do you think about it? Yeah, uh, I'll be honest, I, I hate it. Um, it's, it's fairly undemocratic and um, I know Americans like to use the argument, we're not a democracy, we're a republic, but that doesn't take away from the fact that um, uh, uh, one person's vote in one state carries more weight than uh, another person in a more popular state. Um, and and it had its uses, like Shala just said, about 200 years ago, but um, not today where, uh, where you know, a, a lot of urban metropolises in, around America are, are growing, they're getting more diverse, but they're all centred around, you know, either the West Coast or the East Coast um, or Chicago. And and you've got all these sparse states that have more animals than humans, um, such as Wyoming, <laughs> getting as much of a say as um, you know, I'm, I'm more, a state that has more humans and it's um, uh, it, it just goes against the principles of democracy I think uh, whether it'll, anything will actually happen to it uh, it won't um, there, there needs to be a much of course you know there'll needs to, it, it'll be amended through the constitution and for that to happen Democrats need to have um, a majority of the state legislatures and all that kind of stuff so it'll be very difficult and it, it will it will have to follow a cultural shift before before any any of this can actually happen legislatively and i think because i was just going to say i think because of that um american sort of protection of the constitution and of you know what was happened 200 years ago um gus you touched on like i think it's the point there needs to be a um there needs to be a cultural shift um and i think yeah that that's i can i i think that is unlikely but i do wonder like frankie what do you what do you think about it it's an interesting one i think as as both charlie and gus have stated you know we had its uses um and there's always that argument that pops up that you know why should the big states the most popular States have a, have a say and dictate the outcome of the election, gives the, the more rural um, guys and gals a, a bit of a voice and a, and a leg up. And, you know, if we had California dictating and New York dictating the policy for the whole country, that wouldn't be very fair. Um, but, you know, how applicable is that? How true is that? Uh, and is that just a way for, I guess, the Republicans to appeal to their base and make sure that they have a fighting chance? Um, it's 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 a complicated issue, and, and again, it would need a massive 
um, change in the country, given you know, the immense task it is to reform the constitution um, in, in any state, but I guess especially in the United States. So, yeah, it won't it won't happen. Um, is it time to discuss it? Who knows? Probably. Uh, Biden, I know he's open to to seeing what reform can be done to the Supreme Court. So, you know, if we do have a Biden presidency and maybe a Congress and a, a Senate that plays ball, we'll see. We'll see if he looks into that as well. But um, I think one thing is for sure, if Trump gets re-elected, I don't think that's going to be up for discussion whatsoever. Yeah, I think just going off of that, a lot of people, a lot of people, um, uh, you know, their spells are the, the fears of the tyranny of the majority. Um, now, this is just outright tyranny of the minority. Um, and, and just uh, if you look at the Senate, um, uh, yeah, Republicans hold the majority. But if you actually do it proportionately, uh, it's it's much, much lower. Um, and so like the, the, the classic example is Wyoming. Each state has two senators. We know that Wyoming has half a million people, two senators. California has 40 million people, two senators. Um, and and perhaps uh, uh, maybe it's a topic later in the day. I'm not sure, but um, uh, statehood of DC and Puerto Rico, um, that's, that's come up. And, and I know the House Democrats, they've passed a resolution for DC statehood and that will really balance out the Senate in that regard, but also enfranchisement and in, uh, in, in what in a democratic country, that's that's important as well. I don't, I'm not too mad at it's the down. fact that the Senate only has two senators for each state. I think that's fine. I think the issue is that the House hasn't changed in about 100 years when it comes to the number of representatives offered by each state. Um, and so what should be, at the, I think at the current rate, one house rep, like one house representative represents like 700,000 or 730,000 Americans which means that they are trying to appeal to too many people at once for example in australia one um, electorate only has 100,000 people um, and according to the founding fathers each representative should not represent any more than 50,000 um, so there's a clear need for reform in just the terms of numbers allocated for the House of Representatives, I think. Just adding on to that as well, it's more it's interesting when you look at particular states that have only one House seat, but they have two senators in particular. So that one house, that one member of the House, has to still represent the whole state, essentially, which doesn't sound quite right when you think about it. You know, there's a member at large for the state. Um, but the DC statehood matter is really interesting and I, I, I don't know too much about it, but essentially would a lot, would all Democrats in the Senate get behind it? Would there be some Democrats from Republican states who might actually vote against it? Um, what, or do you think the party would be able to harness all the votes to get it passed? I think, uh, Democrat senators that are more on the conservative side of things. Um, uh, the, the, the Democrat from West Virginia comes to mind. Um, I, I think some are on the record of being skeptical about this um, because it will, it will diminish their voice further. Um, 
because we know DC, it's a it's, it's a democratic territory. If, even the Republicans in DC are members of the Democratic Party because that's that's how they get to have their say. Um, Puerto Rico is interesting because it it it, it leans uh, it elects more Republicans. I think in, in its territory wide offices it, it actually elects Republicans, but its demographics are different from what happens on the mainland US. Um, yeah, I think there is there is some fear um, uh, because it, unlike the Australian system, individuals in, in the Senate and the House of Reps actually vote in their own accord. So, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an interesting one because I think historically they've always been um, uh, sort of added on in pairs, whether it was that division between slave states and free states. So when you wanted to add a free state, you had to tackle on a slave state as well to balance things out. Or more recently, you know, Republican states and Democratic states. So I think if it was balanced out with, with another uh, Republican leaning state, then I think you could probably have more consensus. Um, but if, if it was just a question of does Washington get statehood individually and by itself, Perhaps you'd have some of those more sentimental or, you know, principled uh, Democrats, if any of them are still around, um, you know, with the, with the whole Supreme Court uh, scandal that has happened, you know, just days before before an election. Who knows how many of those senators really want to uphold principles anymore and, and precedent. But if any of them are still around, that, that might be a sticking point, that they don't want to just create a new rule and, and, and break new ground that then the other side can always just exploit in future. I mean, it's happened in the past. Oh, with, sorry, with the Dakotas. No, no. I just wanted. To put yeah, yeah, yeah. Go talk about the Dakotas. I was just going to talk about Hawaii. Go oh on. no, it, it's not. It was a. It was a Republican. Uh, uh, the only reason the Dakotas were split into the North and South so that the Republicans could have four instead of two senators. That's the only reason. There's no cultural. There's no cultural difference. There's no demographic difference. There's no any substantial difference. It's just two extra senators. That's the only reason North Dakota exists. Yeah, um, Hawaii was entered into as the 50th state by I think Eisenhower, um, basically because it was a, like a large democratic stronghold. Um, but no, no, because it's a Republican stronghold. Um, but then he like got them into a state and then they sort of started flipping towards the Democrats. So he stabbed himself in the back a bit. Um, and I feel like that's the fear that some uh, politicians may have. that they may enter into a state and think, oh, we're betting on it. We've got, you know, three votes in hand but really the demographics of the state shift and they'll start voting a different way. But you can't foresee how a state's going to vote in the future. I think that's the long, I think that's the big story about it. DC, you know, in 200 years, how would DC be voting? Will it still be Democrat? Now, noting it's not going to flip this election. If it flipped, it would be, yeah, pigs, will, pigs will fly um, because it is a 92, 95% democratic stronghold um but i think you know it, states can change texas we're calling texas a swing state this election we're calling georgia a swing state arizona a swing state texas in particular is a strong republican state it's the republican version of california that's how strong it is so you can always see things change especially when statehood is not an issue anymore let's say dc statehood is off off the table, there's no, it, they've got it, there's no more discussion. They're going to look more inward. 
they're going to be looking at what actually will be what they actually will need to sell. Um, a bit of an and a bit of an odd fact on that. Um, there will always be a federal capital territory in DC. There always has to be a district, federal district, but isn't part of the state. So there's um you go search it up. They've got the plan about how they're going to isolate the Capitol building and the White House and a few other federal buildings so they're not in the new state, um, which looks quite bad actually. I'm not going to lie. But um, Imogen, we haven't heard from you on it. What do you think about? DC becoming a state. Do you think good things, bad things should happen, shouldn't happen? Um, I'm not really sure if it's just sort of putting a band-aid on a situation that the problems go a lot deeper. Um, in regards to potentially reforming the whole system might be actually a, a smarter option rather than just let's tack on a few more senators or states or whatever. Um, and again, as you said, just is it only being done sort of to add more potential opportunities for a particular party to gain influence uh how will those how will that work in future what's the real point here um potentially i i'm sort of leaning towards more of the overall reform but also then that runs into the issue that was raised earlier as well regarding how likely or how difficult that is um we already know that anything as soon as you start mentioning constitution and change in the same sentence everyone gets very passionate fired up or turned off so that's sort of the issues you're dealing with there's not enough um, push or will from I believe majority of people in order to have that social change to cause that change to occur so that's sort of my two cents on the issue yeah it's um it's a, it's a big discussion you can't just you could make the two Senate seats. You could get that. And they already have a member of the House of Representatives. They're just not voting. Um, but again, what will Republicans do? It's similar. You know, will they try to find another territory they can make into a state to get themselves two seats? And where do you stop? It's sort of it's the same argument with um, packing the courts, which is something we'll probably discuss later. But, you know, put another justice on what's going to stop another justice and then another justice and by the time you know it you have to put justices on the Supreme Court which I really hope that doesn't happen but anyway that's a different topic um, there yeah. is one thing I'd like to bring up um, just touch on um, I think we mentioned before that constitutional reform was one of the ways to um, change the electoral college um, however there is a national compact between states um, which is sort of like a workaround that has been being done to try and um, avoid using the Electoral College or try and use the Electoral College in a more representative fashion. Um, I think it's about, about 13 to 15 states, including the District of Columbia, um, uh, and represents about 36% of the vote. And what they do is they assign their delegates not as a winner-take-all system, but using a representative of the how the vote actually worked in the state. So even if it was three-fifths one way or two-fifths the other, they would allocate delegates that way. Um, and that is slowly gaining traction um, and would be able to be used um, as a way to sort of circumvent the um, main structural flaws of the Electoral College. Um, just wanted to mention that. Do you think that goes back then to the popular vote though? And do you think that also will cause a lot of smaller states' grievances on that front? 
I feel like at this stage, a popular vote would be more representative than what is currently being done. Um, I'm not saying it's the best alternative. I mean, I am a big fan of like multi-party, multi-member electorates, things like um, preferential voting, group vote tickets. I think there are more representative versions of voting that we have. Um, but I don't think America is ready for that yet. So they need to take smaller steps to get to something that is more representative. And yeah. turning towards a popular vote is a step in that the right direction, I feel. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of the interviews we've got is with, uh, is with the Travis County Clark Commissioner. So that's, sorry, Travis County Clark, which is based in um, Austin, Texas. Um, that's where the county is. And she ultimately said, oh, we need electronic voting because of how many counties we have, oh, sorry, how many elected positions we have. If you had a very complicated electoral system or multiple electoral systems in the United States with all their positions they elect, it would be such a complicated system. Could you imagine just a citizen trying to understand, oh, federally we've got MMP, we've got MMP. Um, Statewise, what have we got statewise? I don't know what we've got statewise. Why don't we do pre why don't we do preferential? Or why don't we do proportional representation? And then how do we elect our state board and how do we elect the railroad commissioner? Which by the way, in Texas they're all elected positions. I'm not joking. I will show you the ballot. Um and some of these ballots can be, you know, ten pages long. Um, do you think it would get confusing then if we did something like the states? It would be confusing, but I have trust in the reasonableness and common sense and the intelligence of the average American to be able to navigate a system. I mean, we have different voting systems here. Uh, no, we don't. Um, but I feel like if it is simple enough and if people are well-informed enough, they can make the right decision. And I know I'm putting a lot of faith um, in people who may not deserve it, but I really do trust that common sense can and should um, prevail. I know this is very odd for a pessimist to be saying this, but the, the system needs to be reformed. It just needs to change. And at this point, any change is better than no change because at least it'll be different to what is currently happening, which is an absolute farce. Mm, it's interesting one. I don't know, I feel like you touched on a whole lot of things there that are potentially wrong with the American political system. Um, and a lot of them are very much cultural, I think. You know, the, the sheer polarization that we've come to, I think, just turns off a lot of voters. But even if you were to make the, the voting system or reform it in a way that relies on, on the common sense of the individual, I don't think that's, that's, that's all that needs to be changed, really. You know, when you've got you know, the likes of CNN on one side that, that have their daily Trump bashings and then Fox News on the other, which is basically the propaganda arm of the, of the Trump administration, and no real, you know, sensible or more objective news source. Um, I think a lot of people just look at that and then, you know, they look at these, you know, zero-sum games, um, the zero-sum game that occurs in a lot of American politics. I think a lot of them are just not to vote. So then, you know, as as Ryan said, if you get some pages to vote, you know, if I wasn't getting fined, would, would I want to vote for anyone? Not sure. Um, even if I was a common sense individual. I, th I think that there's, there's a lot wrong with the system as it stands, but 
that even if there was a reform to the way voting did occur, I'm not sure how effective that would be. No, you're right. I think there's a lot of cultural aspects involved that I don't think I've grasped or have a nuanced understanding of to be able to question or understand better. Um, and I think that does affect America to its detriment uh, because it's a, such a politicized um, thing. And again, that idea of the winner takes all, I think, is really the main building, the main block to try and get a consensus over anything because it has to be someone has to lose. Um, and unfortunately, that means a lot more there than it does anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'll be uh, just popping off. Uh, I'm looking forward to joining you again later in the day, everyone, yeah, um, when there are more results. Um, take care. See you then. Yeah. Um, we're going to go now. We've got a pre-recorded interview with Dana de Beauvoir, who is um, the Travis County clerk in Texas in the United States. Um, we have a pre-recorded clip that we'd like to play for you guys and all about electoral integrity so a bit of what we've already been talking about um, and when we come back um, we'll have some new guests um, I think Shalji you're staying on Frankie we'll see you later in the day so thank you so much yeah. for coming on thank you all um, we'll see how it all goes and thank you so much see you later yeah Sorry, guys, that was my mistake. Um, again, another tech stuff up. That's all right. Um, this is, you know, okay. feels more like a real broadcast with all these tech stuff. You know? We should have it now. There we go. When we cast our vote at a federal election, we are asked to complete two paper ballots, the infamously long Senate ballot and the smaller House of Representatives ballot. We mark our preferences and put the paper in the box. It is the same throughout the entire country. For America, that is different. States implement electronic voting with the machines used determined at a county level with instructions also given from the state and federal level. American voting has had quite an extensive history. The United States Constitution does not say how Americans should cast their ballots in elections. Article 1, Section 4 simply states that it is up to each state to determine the times, places and manner of holding elections. Over the history of the Republic, 
voting has shifted from voice voting to paper ballots, the Australian paper ballot, and the first voting machines. From the lever voting machines, which had more than 200 levers, to punch cards and hanging chads, the technology has come a long way. The last major shift in voting advancements was through the Help America Vote Act of 2002, which was enacted after the issues of the presidential election in Florida, which held up the announcement of George W. Bush as president for over a month. This aimed at implementing higher standards in federal elections. Machines became touchscreen based and counties and states spent millions of dollars to upgrade. Yet issues still arose with the 2016 election, exposing threats to voting machines targeted by Russian hackers in 21 states. On 6th of January 2017, the Department of Homeland Security subsequently designated election infrastructure, including voting machines and federal elections, as critical infrastructure, making it a priority under the US National Infrastructure Protection Plan. Prior to this, a plan started in Travis County in Austin, Texas. A number of academics and staff in Travis County collaborated on Starvote, a new system which would resolve deficiencies that machines on the market voiced. This was overseen by Dana de Beauvoir, Travis County Clerk. A role she has held since 1986, Mr. Beauvoir has had a variety of experience in election coordination even serving as an advisor and election observer in Bosnia, Bangladesh, Kosovo, and at the end of apartheid in South Africa. Uh, Starvote was one of those labors of love that went on for a lot of years, uh, and it was a struggle the entire time. But finally, we succeeded in, in accomplishing our goal. And the goal was to try to pull together uh, the brilliant computer scientists and academicians who study um, computer security regarding elections and to get them to help and be a part of developing a, a new voting system, a different voting system that they would not criticize. The problem from the public's and the elections administrator point of view is if all you're doing is criticizing, then you're not part of the solution. You're no help. So what I did was I set up Starvote to be a chance for those folks to come in and help. And it, the, it turned out to be a very successful venture, although not right away. Um, we ended up uh, in Travis County taking the, all of the work that we had done to develop Starvote, including the design of the system, the structure of the um, uh, nonprofit organization, the long-term and short-term uh, budgeting, uh, setup that needed to take place. All of that happened first, and we were unsuccessful at getting uh, any of the regular election vendors to build the system. And it was about a year later that uh, things happened, uh, and what happened was, was that the Department of Defense, through Microsoft, had picked up a contract to build the equivalent of Starboat. It's now called Election Guard. It's going to be a wonderful contribution to progress forward on um, making sure we have proper auditing using some new tools like Indian verification and homomorphic encryption. And those tools will be incredibly effective in proving up our elections because the future of elections can't be a hand-marked paper ballot only. 
larger jurisdictions, they, that kind of a system is completely unworkable. We have to have electronic voting. So the question is, how do we develop electronic voting, even if it is with the paper trail, which is a good thing, that proves up its own uh, value, that establishes its own um, measures for confidence. We know it's accurate to the 97% uh, confidence level, and here's how we know. All of that is what Election Guard, which used to be Starvote, is going to offer us for the future. And it, um, the, you know, the, the, what we thought was the end of Starvote was only a momentary shedding of tears uh, before it got picked up again, and we will see the benefit from all those years' effort. In a country like Australia, we only use paper ballots. Um, I think about the United Kingdom as well with 60 to 70 million people who declare their elections on the night or the morning after but only use paper right. ballots. How would the United States differ on that front that, they, that you and the United States need the electronic means of voting compared to other countries that use paper ballots? The main difference between the success of using a hand-marked paper ballot has to do with what's on the ballot and are voters likely to make scribble mistakes on their ballot. In most of the United Kingdom and perhaps even Australia too, the ballot itself is limited. It, it is not nearly the lengthy proposition that you see in American elections. In American elections, you could easily have a ballot that had 20 pages. To it because there are so many uh, officials that we elect rather than appoint. And some states have more elected rather than others. Texas is probably right at the top of the list to have everybody elected, more or less. So when, when we're looking at those kinds of defining characteristics of an election, it does make it completely different. This isn't just one or two seats in a parliament. This is an entire roster that's taking care of everything from the federal down to the most local school board uh, at large or member uh, trustee. So it, it is a different order of business. And it isn't so much that um, jurisdictions with large populations can't make use of a hand scribbled paper ballot, which always runs the risk that the voter is going to make a mistake. The point is, is that you have to have that ballot ready and prepared for wherever the voter goes. And a lot of times in other places, um, your voter will have one place to go and it's always the one place and the ballots for that neighborhood can be in that one place. In a lot of places in the United States, we have what's called early voting and we have um, vote centers for election day. And that means that any one voter can go to any one of sometimes hundreds of places in their county uh, and choose to vote anywhere. Well, if you have that kind of a system, then you have to have a way to have an electronic inventory so that you can make sure that no matter where the voter shows up to vote, you're going to have the proper ballot for them. I was wondering something from your keynote speech in 2016. You started you started the predicament between having to monitor the or fix issues with the current system, but also then fund a new system as well. And I think you mentioned you had an issue with the InterCivic eSlate technology. Um, and then you've also discussed, and a lot of others have discussed as well, the cost of implementing new voting machines throughout the entire country. I think a Brennan report put it at between 580 million to $3.5 billion as well. Um, what do you think the feasibility of replacing all the machines will actually be. But in addition to that as well, 
has Travis County benefited from any boost in funding over the last few years that um, since voting machines were classified as critical infrastructure or not so much? Not so much. There's been very little sharing down to the local level. And we've had a couple of instances where the federal government helped. One of them was uh, in 2002 when they made uh, dollars available for us to purchase new voting systems that were not the old problematic lever machines and punch cards. So when we made the transfer there, there the federal government um, issued $4 billion uh, in support to counties, to states and counties, for them to upgrade their voting systems. And that's when we all went to electronic voting because it was so much better um, than what we had in terms of punch card and lever machine. And it allowed many counties to go to a model that allowed more convenience voting for voters. And that is the main reason why we still need to always pursue having electronic voting so that we don't restrict voters' options to get to the polls. Um, the, the main idea behind Starvote was that no matter if you're voting exclusively by, you know, with an, uh, an electronic system, or if you have a paper trail under either circumstance, you still have a way to, to prove that every electronic ballot that was submitted at the same time corresponds with its paper correlator, with its, with its paper matching partner, or you can go in and through hash code testing, verify that each electronic vote that was submitted ended up being the same vote that came out in the tally. Either of those proposals is what's going to make us be able to use um, electronic voting for the future. And we really do need to consider that because we're, we're way too mobile and we have traffic problems everywhere. Voters need to be able to go to different places rather than just their one home neighborhood precinct. If I'm correct, I believe in each county in Texas at the moment, due to COVID-19 restrictions, there's one drop box per county. I was wondering, and please tell me if it's an impersonate question, but I was no. wondering if I could get your opinion on each county only having one drop box as opposed to multiple spread throughout. Starting July 27th, the governor issued a proclamation which said we're planning to have multiple ways for people to hand deliver uh, their by mail ballot in the state of Texas. Um, the hand delivery was very old law, but is very lightly used. Almost nobody does it. But this time around, it was going to help people avoid being in the position of going inside a polling place. So July 27th, we're told go forth, we can do this kind of thing. A lot of counties put a lot of effort, time, resources, money into setting up these programs. Uh, on October 1st, the first day that Travis County was in the middle of operating its hand-delivered drive-through, the, the, the governor abruptly shut it down midday without notice and without a good reason. The reason they tried to give was that uh, somehow there was going to be some extra fraud associated with people, you know, driving up and hand-delivering their ballot. And that it that can't be true um, because when you make hand delivery of your ballot, you have to go through the exact same steps as a voter that you would find if you were inside the polling place. You have to show ID, you have to sign a signature roster, and you have to, you know, care very carefully make sure your ballot is put in the ballot box. 
none of that offers any opening for any fraud whatsoever. So that was a specious excuse. And the only thing that can be determined from what happened is this was deliberate voter suppression uh, forced on the governor by his extreme far right uh, base of his party because they were unhappy that so many people were taking advantage of by mail voting. Uh, in addition to that, how do you think that will impact the vote, the roughly, if correct me if I'm wrong, roughly 800,000 registered voters in Travis County? Right. 852,000, you've done your homework. Um, well, it did make it harder on them. on them. There's no question about it. This is suppression. Um, what we were able to do in Travis County, though, was take the 11 drive-through lanes that we had, um, you know, made arrangements for downtown that had lots of space for voters uh, and uh, and move it all to the only one office location that was allowed to Travis County where we had planned to have only one drive through lane. We converted that one drive through lane to 16 bays for cars to pull in sort of like a sonic drive in pull in and go through the, the qualification procedure, just like you would if you were a regular voter and deliver your ballot. Um, so now that we started out with 11 or 12 lanes, and now we're up to 16. That's good for voters here in Travis County. They needed multiple locations. At least we've got a facility here that can handle anybody who wants to, to drive up to this office and hand deliver their ballot. And has it been a popular option? Extremely popular. Uh, there have been uh, 18,000 people who have driven up and hand-delivered their ballot uh, from last week and this week, and we intend to operate this program all the way through early voting, the weekend, and through Election Day. And I anticipate that there could be another 15,000 people who don't want to trust uh, the damage done to the post office and believe it's now too late to include their ballot in a normal postal service. And so what they're gonna do is drive it in and hand deliver it. Uh, we're happy to take some of the pressure off the post office and voters are really happy with not having to worry that somehow this voter suppression is gonna be successful at hurting their ability to get their ballot in the ballot box. Yeah. Um, everybody focuses on the days before the election day and the lead up to it but obviously this year and in all years there's a lot of work after the election day in regards to vote count and tabulation how will this year differ from previous years just because there will be there are some mail-in votes there are the drop box um there there are hand deliveries how will it differ well it will not differ from other elections because it's it's common and normal for us to keep counting ballots after election day um, if you're a military or overseas ballot your ballot can come in six days after election day and still be perfectly fine to count so that's standard that's the way it's always been and there will always be what we call late ballots um, the difference this time around though is that there are many many more people who qualify for a by-mail ballot, and you have to do that in Texas. The, the biggest category used, the largest category used for by-mail is over 65 years of age. Well, we have lots of people in this community who are in fact over 65 and who've always voted in person. But this time around, they're gonna choose to vote by mail because they feel like they're in a higher risk category and they don't wanna have to risk going inside. 
So we've got a huge increase in by-mail ballots and 86% of that total group that's, that's putting in uh, by-mail ballots right now is local over 65. So when people start talking about fraud this and fraud that, you know, there's no basis for that assumption and they are talking about their next door neighbor. Do you think that will differ compared to other states where there will be a large, where mail-in voting, sorry, where mail voting will be a, a lot more popular is the wrong word, but um, a lot more dominant because the state hasn't suppressed it as much or there aren't as many fears regarding it? There are some states that are voter friendly and they do everything they can to help their voters. And then there are states like Texas who make every obstacle that they can think of, uh, you know, they put it into policy and, and, and attempt to interfere with voters easily accessing the polls. Uh, it's an unfortunate story, but it is a long old story for the state of Texas. Um, in the future, I'm hoping that we're going to see changes in all of those areas with uh, online voter registration so that we don't have to deal with late voter registration applications or even a process that requires somebody to print out something on a printer they may not even own at home. So there are so many obstacles in so many places developed over the last 20 years. Um, it would be link too lengthy for us to try to list them right now. Uh, but we, but as soon as we have the capability to turn Texas and other states like Texas into voter friendly states, we have the capacity to do that, to make things easier. Um, certainly accessibility, the polling locations is one opening up by mail voting to a more uh, universal franchise is an obvious next step for a state as large as Texas. What would you like to see the federal government do besides state authorities? Uh, require online voter registration. Okay. We should have had that in place years ago. It, it's, it's far too um, old and pedantic and slow and error-ridden to actually rely on in this modern age. Uh, I think that's the first place where the federal government should step in and say, uh, voters are supposed to have their rights protected. And this is the best way to do that. Um, the committee that I served on uh, with the uh, recently studied the, the future of elections. And what we discovered is we are going to have systems for the future that include some kind of a paper trail, but that must be automated in order to deal with the huge um, complications that we have with American elections and with the and with the turnout in various areas. We want to be able to have the kind of flexibility in tallying ballots and in offering ballots to voters so that we don't have to restrict their behavior. They can go wherever they want to vote and we have to have electronic systems to support that. With the paper trail seems to be the gold standard for the future. Australia has compulsory voting. Yes. Um, so that means we have a 95% voting rate despite people still, 5% of people still don't go vote. And then around 5% of the ballots are informal. So they do what we call a donkey vote. Um, would you ever like to see in the United States compulsory voting implemented? Okay, well, so I have to, I have to wear my hat as only an elections administrator just trying to get the job done. Yes, compulsory voting would be wonderful uh, because it makes people get out. And, and if there's good voter training and voter education so that they realize they don't have to comment on 
racism issues that they've not researched or they don't do anything about, just the ones they care about, at least we have everybody participating in the democracy. Now, as a, a free speech supporter and, a, you know, when I put my, my citizen and my party hat back on, I'm not sure America is going to be as, as grateful or as appreciative of compulsory voting as Australians are. Uh, certainly that, that policy has a lot to speak for it, you know, in, in terms of positivity for the public. Um, but I, I don't know that the, that the actual finding people and the actual, you know, enforcement of it would be very welcome in America. Do you think we'll have a result from Texas on the night slash the morning of the election? Uh, well, I think I think Texas is one of those places where it's not likely to be terribly late. Uh, in other words, I see this as a more normal uh, distribution of results once the polls close. And the reason for that is because uh, all of our cities, over 100,000, are allowed to go in and open up, especially their by-mail ballots, ahead of time and do the processing, which gets them all unfolded and verified and signatures verified and all that uh, and prepare even so much as backfolding where the bins are uh, in the folded piece of paper and then putting a weight on top of them so that they will pass through the scanner easily. Texas law allows the big cities to work that in advance and the only thing you have to reserve for election day is just the tallying. The places that are going to have the biggest problem is where there's restriction in state law that says you can't touch those ballots until either the beginning of election day or in some cases election night when the polls close at 7 or 8 p.m. That puts that that's guaranteed to take days and days just to process the normal uh, workload of ballot by mail. Um, they're they're tedious. They're slow. It's all manual uh, and there are many audits. So this is not a fast process. Look for the states that don't let you, that don't let their people get a head start. That's where you're going to see delays. And the second part of that question, and again, being an elected official, you do not need to answer this, but what do you think the result of the presidential election will be? I think it will be the result of the biggest turnout Texas and Travis County have ever seen. <laughs> I, I think that's a very good answer. But <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I think that's pretty much everything for me. I'm really grateful, especially during this really hectic time for you to speak with me. Um, I can't imagine how busy you must be at the moment <laughs> having to deal with everything. Yeah, our coattails are flying. <laughs> In a so we're back, everyone. Um, and it was a privilege to speak with Dana. Um, Mr. Beauvoir, it was a pleasure to speak with her um, and I hope you all found it really insightful. Um, so Georgia, would you like to introduce our new guest and I'll bring them on? Yes, so Shelter's staying with us but we're also bringing on Prevanice Warren, our Academics Officer and Asha Merchant who's part of our subcommittee. Hello guys. Hi, how you guys doing? Hey. Hello. And we will now go this time properly Instead of Ryan stuffing up, we will go to call. Um, we will go towards some state results.
Okay, so we have some results in from the state of Indiana. We have um, Donald Trump winning their electoral vote. We are still waiting for votes to come in in Virginia, in Vermont, in South Carolina, in Georgia. Um, it is also, thank you, Prav, who's got his whiteboard there. Um, so the only state we can call at this hour is Indiana for Donald Trump elect 11 electoral college, electoral college votes. So we do have a fair bit of the vote standing out, especially this hour. Usually we'll call everything, not everything, but we'd have, we would have called Vermont. We would have called South Carolina. doesn't mean that they're like close races. It just means we don't know the result yet. Um, but welcome to both of you, Archer and Praveen. Um, question we're giving everyone, what's your take on the election? What do you think is going to happen? Well, um, the election is, this is the most anxiety I've had in a while. I mean, um, everything, as you guys mentioned, everything is sort of up for grabs, nothing is sort of safe. I mean, we just saw Kentucky blue for the longest time, now it's back to red, like states that have usually been um, stronghold Republican red states, they're flipping, things like that. Um, it's 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 nerve wracking. I mean, I think also there is, um, in terms of what I think is gonna happen, um, I think it's going to, we're not going to find uh, the like final result today. I think the mail-in ballots counting is going to take a while. Um, whether Donald Trump goes in and, and even though he said he's not going to um, declare, you know, himself as, as the president again, who's to say what he's going to do. But uh, I think it, I think it, uh, will be a problem if it sort of goes that way and then there's um, allegations of fraud, whether it goes to the Supreme Court, things like that. There's a lot of that play and we're all just sort of waiting, waiting for the results. <laughs> How about you, Pravind? Yes, yeah, so it's exciting. I mean, I've never had an election surrounded by, I mean, this is my personal, I've been surrounded by so many people. I mean, I was very lonely in 2016. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess it's exciting. I mean, it's also nerve wracking, but I'm still confident in my heart and in the mathematics that Biden will come up on top. I just, I've been messing around with my own version of the map and I just don't see how he can win based on <laughs> what the polling is saying. But I mean, I don't know. He's always been, I mean, he's always been like one of those people who always pulls a trick out of the hat somehow. So I'll, I'll hold my, hopefully I haven't jinxed it or anything like that. But yeah, exciting. And yeah, I still think, I still think Biden will win. Um, but obviously it's nerve wracking. I'll be interested to see how the toss up states go. Um, whether Texas flips, that would be pretty amazing if it flips or not. Um, but we have to wait for a couple more hours, maybe another hour before that starts coming through. But yeah, I'm just happy to be if here. I, if I may, just quickly, AP has also just called Kentucky for Donald Trump and Vermont for Joe Biden. So that adds three to Joe Biden's column and another eight electoral college votes to Donald Trump's. So Donald Trump currently has 19 electoral college votes to Joe Biden's free, which is sort of what we expect at this time. Um, everybody worries that Donald Trump has a very quick lead. It's normal for the first few states. But I think you were, I think Asha, you said it, you know, Kentucky being blue. Um, what, when you saw that, do you think, what, 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 what was your thought? 
I mean, I was shocked. I'd never seen Kentucky Blue. I just sort of looked at the map and I was like, is this right? And also, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell was was, uh, not winning um, the Senate race as well. I mean, Kentucky is, you sort of, (laughs) um, you sort of think of it as so red and just seeing the potential. I mean, obviously it's it's not there anymore, but I don't know, is is the Senate race still sort of going? Um, I'll have a look at that quickly, but I was just going to say you would get a Democrat lead earlier in Kentucky because they close half the state polls and they close them around the urban area. So you're going to get all the Democrats. Right. Um, but also, I don't know if it led. I don't know if that happened in 2016. So that might be something interesting we go look into because if that was close in the eastern part of the state, that's not a good sign for um, for Trump. A good time for Biden, but I'll have a look into that. Well, Trump, um, can't, Trump can't. Sorry, Trump can't lose anything, right? He just like that. If he goes to Kentucky, that's like it, pretty much. No, he can lose, he can lose a few things because he only had three hundred and seventy. So if he lost Pennsylvania and that was the only thing he lost, he'd still be president because um, he'll be at two eighty six, and then he could lose, and then he could have actually lost Kentucky, and then he could have lost Kentucky, and he'd still be president. Um, so he just needs to get more than 270. So he's got he's got more wiggle room than people think. Biden needs to win the whole rough, uh, like he needs to win Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in order to get to his 270. And that was something Clinton failed to do. But Shelby, what's your take on it? I yeah, I think it's interesting. I don't think there's any surprises thus far. Like this is mostly what we expected. Um, I think it's really interesting that you brought up that sort of rural urban divide. Um, I think it comes back to something that I remember reading about is that um, Democrats tend to be within urban areas and they tend to win um, land in landslides, right? They don't win just a few votes in there. They win by the million. Um, but when it comes to Republicans, they only tend to win at the margins, which sort of gives them an advantage when it comes to the number of counties and things like that, because most elections come down to the margins as opposed to things being won by landslides. So I think that's an interesting thing um, that we can see between the sort of dynamics of the two parties. We've um, we've also got votes starting to come in from Florida, partial, the whole state hasn't closed, but we've got a 53-47 gap, Trump and Biden. Um, the Democratic areas tend to come in a tad bit later, um, but there's 12% of the vote there counted, which because Florida could start counting early, you're gonna have a large amount of vote come in very, very quick, come in a lot quicker than other states. Like you heard Dana talking about Texas and uh, like a state like Pennsylvania, we won't hear till probably Friday once their votes were all counted, um, which is quite shocking. How do you think, I think one state that was called that nobody talked about, as in like media, was Virginia. And Virginia in 2016 shocked a lot of people. It went to Clinton. And her running mate, Tim Kaine, was the former governor and the current senator from Virginia. But it was a very close, it was very close. And usually we would we expected Virginia to be called straight away once the polls closed. It was ours. It was a very close race and Trump was leading for a lot of it. Um, do you think we'll see something like that again in 2020? Or do you think whether once we get the vote through, we'll, you know, be decisive Biden in that state? Any of you, what do you think? Is Trump leading Virginia right now? 
think he is. Um, I believe he is. There's only one district, I think. Oh, I see. Yeah, so he's mm. leading, but we haven't got count. We've got four. It's the count from the border region. So where it borders north, um, where it borders north um, Carolina. Yeah. Um, so we are still waiting on vote from the Richmond area where, where there are the Democratic strongholds. But there is also a Senate race down in Virginia. Um, and supposedly they have just given up entirely on, the Republicans have given up entirely on the race. The Senate race? Yeah. Ah, okay. I'm trying to think. Um, too many maps open. Damn it. Um, we, we also have our guest in the waiting room, I believe, um, who's joining us at 11.30 um but we do so we are still waiting on virginia we still are technically waiting on south carolina which south carolina is one of those states that we hear back from straight away i think the other thing that's interesting is georgia's got two senate elections we need to watch um they've got their normal general senate election and they've got their special election um and the special election is very heavily contested there are two republicans taking that as long as Along with the Democrats, and we also have um, we also have the, we also have the normal election, which was very decisive, but for the Republicans, but it's got a lot closer. Um, based on that, so we've got a few key Senate races at the moment. Who do you think will win the Senate? Do you think we'll be seeing a Republican Senate continue? Mitch McConnell is majority leader. Do you think we'll go Democrat? No, I mean, you can only hope. Um, is I don't think uh, Amy McGrath is winning Kentucky. I think Mitch McConnell's yeah. taking that. Or mm-hmm. Mitch has got about fifty point four percent of the vote. Um, right. How many uh, votes have you counted? How many? Fourteen percent. Right. Okay. I mean, it's all sort of up in the air. I know. I mean, to make uh, the structural changes Democrats need, they need to win the Senate, they need to win the House. It, it, it's very important. It's not just the, <laughs> yeah, you need all three. Um, you, you don't just need the presidency. So it's definitely important. I have a feeling it's going to be really split between the two. I don't think there'll be one. I think with the Senate, it'll be like very close either way. I think it's going to be tight. Yeah. And even if the Democrats win it, I don't think they will get that super majority to overcome a, what's it called? Um, filibuster. Um, yeah. So that's going to be problematic even if they win. But I mean, a win is a win. So that's still something. But ideally, you want to get a filibuster. But I don't think, I don't think there's enough seats in play for them to get. I don't think, don't you need two thirds? No, the filibuster is 60. So the filibuster is 60, I believe. Yeah. Um, and this filibuster no longer exists for Supreme Court appointments and it never and it doesn't exist for cabinet appointments. So um, when Donald Trump was putting his cabinet together, he had Betsy DeVos as the education secretary and she is the education secretary. And that was a 50-50 vote, essentially. Um, and it led to the president of the Senate, who's the vice president, having to pass the tie-breaking vote, which I think might be wrong, but I think it was the first time in American history or modern American history, the vice president ever had to do that because they would have usually required 60, 60 votes. Um, so the filibuster, so they've put the nuclear option because, you know, you could ultimately have filibuster, the Democrats could have filibustered Amy Coney Barrett, but they 
they couldn't because the option the option's gone now. Um, just in regards to Georgia, just a quick key thing that has come up. Um, we actually have vote coming in from around the Atlanta suburbs and they're pro-Democrat. It's a very Democrat-based area. Um, so the state is now blue on that for the time being. But that just has Biden with a 31,000 vote lead at the moment. That can change because we're waiting for the outstanding areas Republican strongholds to come through. Um, I'm going to throw it open to you all now in relation to just the result as it comes in. Any surprises so far? Or do you think this is pretty stock standard? Were you expecting this? Or did you think we'd get the calls a bit quicker? I mean, it's pretty slow today, but I don't think anything, there hasn't been anything too upsetting at the moment. I think everything is just too early to, everything is just too early to call. Um, like even, even, was it Georgia? Yeah, even Georgia's like, yeah, we're only, we're only in a couple of districts in at the moment. So I don't think, I think if we're waiting for surprises, I reckon if I was a betting man, but I'm not, um, I would bet probably about 1 p.m., 2 p.m. our time, we'll start, static um we'll start getting um start getting some surprises in here hopefully just on that do we do we think are any of the uh, major sort of swing states oh sort of, uh differentiating Ooh. Um, Ooh. <laughs> oh you're muted oh i'm muted am i can you hear me now <laughs> okay um no do we think any of the major swing states is there any sort of um differentiation that they're making between uh, counting the votes that people make on the day versus then uh, later on counting the votes that were mailed in because I think you guys mentioned as well earlier um, they're more the votes likely to be mailed in are more likely to be um, democratic um, we're kind of expecting um, Republican voters to sort of show up on the day is that uh, a concern or an issue to look for when you're sort of counting the votes early on well you'd more likely get stronger Republican tally earlier on, depending on what state, if they pre-count the vote or you have to wait till the next day to count the absentee vote. But I think the other concern is if it gets there by election day or not on the state laws on it. So Pennsylvania, and this is why the um, Republicans in Trump's campaign been caught, because as long as it's postmarked as of election day, the vote counts. The Republican party and um, through the Trump campaign is trying to get that stricken down. They do not like that. And the reason they do not like it is because it's a lot of Democrat votes. I think in Pennsylvania, I might be wrong, I heard this stat yesterday, 1.2, 1.3 million Democrats voted by mail, 500,000 Republicans. It's a huge difference. And a state like Pennsylvania, Trump won it by, um, I don't remember the number, I'll come back to that, but I think he won it, it was definitely, I think it was by 80,000, I might be wrong. Wisconsin that, as well. That, yeah. Now blue. They kind of count those votes in. What, what the what the court said about not counting the votes even if they were postmarked prior to election day, um, not sort of counting them if they come in. Yeah. Just and, on yeah, Shelton said Florida's blue. Yeah, the oh, Trump is two hundred. Trump is two hundred thousand <laughs> votes behind at forty-seven percent. So yeah. Wow. But yeah. it, it um, might be. The, the panhandle hasn't come in yet, so that might be a problem. But always a problem. Georgia's leading. Joe Biden's leading Georgia by twenty-five points. Ooh. Is... We bet. I think what percentage is it though? 
because it hasn't been called. No, no, but, it hasn't. Yeah. No, it's still very early, but it is yeah. Georgia and Florida blue. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. The, popular so the, moment, the popular vote at the moment is um, Joe Biden 3.12 million to Donald Trump 3.102 million. So he's winning the vote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think now if um, we might move on, we've already sort of touched on one of the major themes that are impacting this election, which is COVID-19. Um, and I think for me, at least, the second most important um, issue theme that we've sort of um, been dealing with in America is um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that's really had an important impact on this election. Um, so I think we have a clip ready, so we might watch that and then um, have a little discussion about The that. sound will work this time, I promise. And if it doesn't work, I've just made a very bad promise. Um, <laughs> um, just as a bit of a warning before I play it, some of the content may be distressing. Um, so please just note that. The Black Lives Matter movement has swept across the United States again in 2020 with the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. This sparked protests and riots throughout America involving over 20 million people. As Americans head to the polls, they cast their ballot in an environment of great divisions and much civil unrest. On 13th of March, Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old from Louisville, Kentucky, was shot at multiple times by police officers after they received a no-knock search warrant for drug suspicions. This led to protests against police in Louisville. Yet it was the death of George Floyd on 25th of May this year that led to a breaking point. The video of his death circulated across international media with the police officer in question kneeling on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. He was charged with second degree murder and assisting officers were charged for aiding and abetting. Protests began in the Minneapolis St. Paul area, spreading to 2000 cities and towns in over 60 countries. With most peaceful, some protests have resulted in riots, looting, and violent encounters with police. At least 200 American cities imposed curfews in early June due to the violence, and more than 30 states activated over 62,000 National Guard personnel across the country. Donald Trump declared in response to protests that local law and order officials needed to control the situation. In a direct criticism to the governor of Washington state and the mayor of Seattle regarding their protests, he told them directly to, and quote, take back your city. Protests led to the White House being put under lockdown in late May, along with Donald Trump rushed to the White House bunker during the riots. Violence outside the White House was further exacerbated when a path was created for the president to walk to the damaged St. John's Episcopal Church. A few days later, muralists wrote Black Lives Matter down 16th Street Northwest leading up to the White House and Lafayette Square. The section of the street was renamed Black Lives Matter Plaza. Prominent politicians also joined the protests, including Senators Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, Congressman John Lewis, who later died from stage four pancreatic cancer, and Republican former presidential candidate and Senator from Utah, Mitt Romney. With Americans now heading to the polls, 
and a result imminent. They are more divided than ever in recent history. Whoever the next president is, they will need to resolve great societal tensions and race issues which are pulling apart the United States. So, um, Georgia. Yeah, that's such your, a... I would love to hear your perspective on this. Um, well, obviously, I do want to preface with the fact that we none of us are Black American, Americans. None of us have lived that experience. And, you know, I don't want to comment on that experience because I don't know what that's like. Um, but I do think it's very... It's important that you have to talk about it because it is one of the major political... Um, movements of I think the last of the decade um, it's um, hope may lead to um, serious reform if Biden wins obviously I don't think Trump winning again he's gonna <laughs> make much moves about it um, but I do think it's interesting um, looking at it it's hard to um, analyze voter demographics because you can't just categorize you know black Americans or people who care about the Black Lives Matter movement um, with voter demographics um, demographics, but you can um, analyze, I think, both Biden and Trump's response to it. So for me, at least, Biden, um, Trump's, sorry's response um, as acting as president um, was not to show any sympathy really for the issue, not to make any attempt to reform any of the, the demands, but to make it make the um, events violent, make the protests more violent, bring in more armed forces, um, bring in the military, which was very unnecessary. And we've seen ongoing in um, Portland some of the effects of that. Um, but I do want to hear from you guys about your thoughts on this, because obviously I don't think Joe Biden is, is the solution to police reform and to solving racial inequality in the United States. But Quite clearly, Trump, on the other hand, is like an active danger. He's an active threat to this. Um, I think firstly and foremostly, it's important to realise and have the understanding that America is a country that was built on and continues to flourish on uh, the oppression of not only its native people, um, but of people of colour and black people as well. Um, from things like the three-fifths clause to the way that the education system is built and like segregation before it has these continuous uh, continual strains that sort of continue on from history and um one person coming in to the white house isn't going to fix it um like we, we had barack obama he didn't it's not going to fix everything um and i think that's important to note but you do make a very important point that at least he's not actively trying to make things worse. I mean, Biden is not trying to actively make things worse. Um, I also think it's really interesting to note um, when we are talking about um, police brutality and things like that, that is one of the main criticisms that is levied at Kamala Harris, um, who was who is Biden's VP, but who also worked as a prosecutor uh, within, the, like the state prosecutor within the state of California. And the criticism that has been lobbed at her that, you know, she was soft on these sort of issues, um, you know, despite all her other attributes. Uh, I think that's a very interesting thing to bring to the fore. Um, but as you said, like, this is an issue that 
um, really does put into heart the sort of issues of race within America. Um, and it's something that needs deep systematic reform um, because it does intersect with a bunch of other issues from healthcare to education um, to political representation. Mm. Just before, just before, just quickly, I wanted to give a bit of an update in Georgia. Um, so the reason the Democrats are doing very well in Georgia is because they've actually got a significantly larger portion of the white vote in Georgia. So the last time it was at 21%, currently they're at 30%. And to divide in Georgia, they need about 30%. And they need a hot, but they need a whole the African American vote. That's something which is just like, sorry. Um, I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear from um, Asha and Shabinda about this as well. Yeah, no, yeah. I think, um, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, no, what you guys said is a, is a really good point, and one, one person isn't going to change anything. I mean, Joe Biden has been criticised for his sort of take on it as well. I mean, in the, in the debates, you know, the mess that they were, I mean, they were asked about it, and he doesn't support defunding the police, but he does sort of um, at least try and say that they need reform and they need, to, they need to have less responsibility. You know, the police are sort of covering all the ground here. Um, and then qualified immunity, the discussions around that, what Kamala Harris has said, we need to, um, you know, talk about qualified immunity. And, and, and that's one of the main things that Black Lives Matter um, activists are sort of trying to um, uh, address and get rid of. Um, and, and Biden still though, has, has been criticized for taking sort of the, um, the, he's taken sort of like the wealth distribution approach to it, where he's, he's always discussing about um, how um, minorities and people of color are um, gaining wealth and, and the barriers to them, which is, which is a really valid point. Um, but, you know, the, the, I, the, the key issue of police brutality and reform to the policing system in America sort of still uh, stays undiscussed, unnoticed a lot, but yeah. Yeah, I broadly agree. Like, I, I think I broadly agree with most of the sentiments here. Is that like, I think don't think Joe Biden himself is quote the silver bullet for this. I don't. I mean, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. This is like a multifaceted issue. Um, but the real, the real, I think the real advantage of having Joe Biden, even though I, you know, I don't like his stances on like police. His main stances on policing, and that's not quite clear. That's going to be pretty much the status quo, or return to a status quo-ish kind of system between 2020 and 2021 and 2024. Um, but the major point is what what Salja brought up is that yes, like Black Lives Matter. Well, a major part of it is that police brutality. There are other major, major facets that are included under that movement, like healthcare, like education, like access to opportunities. And my hope is, at least with Bill Biden and with a democratically controlled House and Senate, is that those major reforms, which haven't been really, there's, you know, I think that's a good point that there hasn't really been a major legislation reform in the U.S. since Obamacare. Obamacare ten years. 10 years ago. And, you know, Odo's says that there needs to be major reforms in a lot of areas, not just law enforcement and that and that stuff. And I'm hopeful that Joe Biden and hopefully the Democrat Party can win enough support to get those major reforms through, which ultimately help everyone, but ultimately, I think will disproportionately help, you know, not just, you know, Black Lives Matter, but, you know, um, African Americans, but also Latinos, other other minority groups that are in the in the US who are also being disenfranchised. Um, so I think that's a first major step. Obviously, it, obviously, looking beyond 2024, hopefully, maybe if it's Kamala Harris, or obviously a lot of the 
progressive, I mean, what do you call it, progressive left of the um, Democrat Party come of like the 35 age in 2024. Hopefully they will pick up that, pick up the issue of police reform and push it harder heading into the 2020s. But you, you need that first step, obviously. Like if Donald Trump wins, well, that's four more years of nothing. That's gonna, that's four more years of nothing. And things are just gonna oh, get oh, worse. Things getting worse. Yeah. We, we need to take a first step. And I'm, um, you know, hopefully, I mean, Joe Biden might not be the perfect candidate, but at least he's gonna hopefully do something. You know, fingers crossed. You know, if the, the family parliament and all that. But yeah, so that's sort of my broad view on it. I yeah, I mean, Donald I Trump say that he he's the president who's done the most for the black community since <laughs> Abraham Lincoln as well. Oh, that's because, sorry, I just I don't mean to cut us no, off, no. but I I know our guest is about to join us, um, <laughs> and because it is coming up to eleven thirty, but we also have poll closings. Um, so we will go to those poll closings now and then and our guest is going to join us. Okay, so we have poll closings in North Carolina, in Ohio and in West Virginia. Um, so Ohio, we don't have any vote in too early, same in North Carolina and West Virginia too early, but on the basis that that will definitely go for the Republicans. And now it's a pleasure to introduce um, the former foreign minister and former premier for New South, of New South Wales, um, uh, Bob Carr. And I'm, uh, Mr. Carr, can you hear us? Yes, I can. I'm loud and clear. Very nice, nice to be with you. Very nice to be with you. It's good to see you. Um, so I think we will just start off with a bit of a summary of the race. And I've, um, I, I'm not sure if you've been following it, um, but we've had um, calls in the typical states that are usually called those things, Indiana, Vermont. Um, and, but we also have... Um, but we also have a very close race currently in Georgia, uh, in Florida, um, and presuming a close race in North Carolina and a narrow race in Ohio. I was just wondering if I could get your general take on the current state of the race. Yeah, far too early, Ryan. Far too yeah. early. Um, small numbers of votes, and I wouldn't draw any conclusions. I, um, can I share a few views, though, about choices for Australian involved in this? Yes, um, Yeah. First, first of all, climate. The commentators in Australia have overlooked the bold nature of Biden's commitments on climate. He said he'll get all coal and gas out of the electricity generation system of America by 2035. He'll pour trillions, literally trillions, into electronic vehicles, the charging stations they require across America, retrofitting old buildings to make them more efficient, which is a big way we often overlook of reducing greenhouse emissions. He's going to get America to net zero emissions by 2050. Implication for Australia, we've got a government that's resisting that. And we're going to look like a natural ally of Brazil and Saudi Arabia if Biden wins. And Biden is talking further 
about climate diplomacy, about international conferences where he's recruiting friends and allies on this big issue of climate. The Europeans are there, Canada's there, China's there, and Japan and South Korea, China and Japan with recent announcements about, about net zero emissions. Um, so climate is something Australians ought to start thinking about quickly should Biden win. The second thing is um, a more professional foreign policy. And I know that's something you're focused on, but Biden will use multilateralism, he'll respect institutions like the WTO. Um, he will be attracted to rules-based trade, not the thing that attracts Trump, which is bilateral trade deals, so-called managed trade. And Australia's interests are served by that. On China relations, US and China, that's the most important bilateral relationship in the world today. And it's important, of course, to, to Australia. You're going to see Biden maintain competition with China, and see China as a strategic rival, but more self-consciously than Trump would ever attempt, open up areas of cooperation, climate and pandemic management, while maintaining the competition with China on tech and being more considered about trade. What he does on Taiwan, we don't know, but he'll make, he'll, he'll register more objections with the Chinese record on human rights, but it'll be a more consistent and professional performance. There are just two things I thought I'd, I'd highlight while we're waiting for more interesting results. I was just wondering, in relation to what you just mentioned, do you think that the Biden that a Biden administration will have the capacity to do that, or do you think they'll have to look more inwards due to a lot of the civil unrest, but also the economic issues? I think I think there'll be more civil peace under a Biden administration, um, and that's in line with things he and his colleagues have said throughout the campaign. Um, what can he do? to wind back the systemic racism that has been revealed in the performance of city-based police across across the United States. Uh, that's something to think about. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I also just follow up? You mentioned um, Biden would be much more invested and interested in multilateralism, obviously, than Trump. But considering the impact Trump's had internationally in the last four years, do you think we'll see an immediate return to, you know, America participating in the UN and other multilateral institutions? Or do you think that sort of American exceptionalism will sort of socially carry through and it might take a while to mend that? I think that's, that's, that's that goes to the heart of things, that question. I think, I'll, I'll think, I think you'll, you, you will see, because it will have to occur, a quick shift in the American position, more respect for multilateral institutions. They're going to have to work hard on the, the challenge of returning to the international agreement on Iran. I want to do that. Biden is very proud of the diplomacy of the Obama years in getting, in getting Iran to rule out nuclear weaponization. And you've got the American security establishment and the Europeans who have said the, the international agreement 
was working. So all his instincts will be to return to that multilateral agreement, which Trump famously tore up. Yeah, I think just as a bit of a follow-on from that in, re in relation to the multilateral system, we're obviously seeing it being very pressured now due to the coronavirus. How do you think a Biden administration will answer those challenges? It won't simply just rejoin. It will need to get compromises. How do you think it will compromise? I think the the pandemic is out of control in America. Yeah. He's going to have to think creatively and take some inspiration from the great, great president whose photo is here, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose response to the Great Depression, he was elected president in 1932, was a bold improvisation, bold experimentation. And I think Biden will have to be pragmatic and try different approaches to managing this virus, rather as Australia's done, rather as Australia's done. Um, but he's got to deal, do it with, with an electorate that has been persuaded by Trump that masks are bad, masks are to be avoided, wearing a mask is a sign of weakness, Masks have been rendered. This is this is part of the pathology of America. Masks have been been rendered a, 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 a an issue of cultural warfare in the United States, and that's the position that Biden inherits when 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 Dr. Fauci and others, I'm sure it will keep Dr. Fauci, Trump would sack Dr. Fauci, would be telling him masks are an indispensable part of containing this virus. Yeah, I um, because we we have seen. I think it was the rally yesterday, but Donald Trump was at. Um, there was the fire Fauci, um, chant yeah. coming from yeah. the audience. Yeah, that's right. And he does nothing to discourage that. You see, John McCain, John McCain in two thousand and eight, the Republican candidate for president, at a rally, had a Republican supporter say something savage about Barack Obama, like he's not an American. He said, no, McCain, the Republican candidate for president said, no, madam, that's not right. I know him, he's a good man. Now, wouldn't you have thought decency and a sense of the obligations of this great office would have persuaded, I'll just turn my phone up, uh, would have persuaded, would have persuaded Trump to to, to said to that audience, um, no, Dr. Fauci is a good person who's helping us save American lives. That's the difference between how any other president, Democrat or Republican would have thought and how this sui generis political leader has positioned himself. Everything is hostile and based on grievance and resentment and negativity. I, I know the scene you're talking about from um, 2008 and he's at his rally and the lady says, oh, he's a Muslim and, and like she's ultimately scared of him. And he says, and he goes, I disagree with him, but he's a good family man. It was such yeah. a point. And then you compare it with eight years later with the Clinton-Trump yeah. campaign and even now. Um, you, were, you were foreign minister during the 2012 election, which resulted in Barack Obama being... Um, 
re-elected and he got a second term. I was curious, what sort of work would you as foreign minister or would the Department of Foreign Affairs have to do in relation to the election? Do you prepare for any eventual, did you have to prepare for any eventuality? Um, was there a briefing on potentially a Romney administration? Or was it just wait till the results come and then we deal with it? Yeah, the key thing was to see that our embassy in Washington has got did have viable links with with both sides. Obviously, we had them with the incumbent side. Two thousand and twelve was about about whether we, whether uh, Obama, President Obama, would get a second term. So, so our links with his administration were very sound, very good. Um, the challenge was to see that we had links with the other side. And early that year, sorry, in summer that year, I had a meeting um, with Romney. And it was good work by our embassy to see that a, a foreign minister, a foreign minister of the middle power, was able to see Romney. I was returning from a conference uh, north of San Francisco. And um, I was able in a hotel in San Francisco to, to see candidate Romney, Governor Romney, uh, before he went and addressed a, a fundraising meeting. And I just I just took it as an opportunity to say to him, well, we had a little chat about the Olympics because he managed a Winter Games and he'd been in Sydney when we were hosting our big event in 2000 when I was Premier. And then I, then I said, I said, um, hey, Governor, there's one matter I'd like to raise with you. And he sort of rearranged his face to say, look, yes, let's be serious now. Well, just reminisce about our experiences managing Olympic Games. I said, I just want you to know that Australia is a good ally um, of the United States, and we've got a deep interest in your success. Um, and I did say something like, um, talk of American decline has got to be balanced by this fact. You are only one budget deal away from reversing talk of American decline. To my embarrassment, I later learned he then went into the fundraise, Republican fundraising rally and he said, he said, I've just been speaking to the Foreign Minister of Australia and he told me how deeply concerned he is by America's debt and deficit. And this got back to the White House and they sent a message saying, hey, what's going on here? And my reply was, hang on, hang on, I just used a line I used before. I said, America, you've heard me say it yourselves. I said, America uh, can fix its debt up with one budget deal. And this is a measure, measure of America's success. They said, we know, we know what happened. We know that's all you said. And we know the political use he, he made of it. Just be careful. So that's, that's interesting. If you open up a dialogue with someone who's running repeatedly for the presidency, uh, he or she can walk out of that meeting and say, I've just been speaking to the Australian representative. They said they're deeply concerned about the way we're going. And that would have also happened in 2016 and with the Biden team in this year as well, would presumably. Is it easier? Is it easier, or would it be presumably easier when the candidate was the former vice president as opposed to Donald Trump, who never held a political office? Is that absolutely? Yeah. yeah, and absolutely. In the one meeting I've had with Joe Biden was in the White House um, early in 2013. We sat in his office, the fire was crackling, the snow was coming down outside, there was a gleam on the, the beautiful museum quality Federation era antiques. And um, 
it was a it was a very relaxed conversation it showed his charm his intelligence he spent a lot of time talking about his relationship with the vice president of china xi jinping both vice presidents and he said uh, a lot of their conversation at one meeting was about Xi's curiosity over the question how, how America handled the relationship between its political leadership and its military leadership. The lesson I take from that, looking back on it seven years on, when Biden unexpectedly is running for president, is that he was a man who would speak confidently to his old colleague, companion, interlocutor, who is now the president of China. And I think the big feature of Biden's diplomacy is going to be climate diplomacy. And he would be confident about his ability to put China under pressure to have them decarbonize their Belt and Road initiatives, for example. Um, but yes, the short answer is, Ryan, I just thought I'd share that anecdote with you, because it's the only meeting with Biden I've had. Um, it, it is easy to deal with someone who's had the experience of government indeed. Look at the difficulty, look at the difficulty then um, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had in that, that first telephone meeting, that first meeting he had with uh, Donald Trump. Thank you for that. Um, just following on from something you were just saying earlier regarding China, um, I'm just curious regarding how a Biden or Trump administration respectively would change Australia's uh, relationship with the US and China, that sort of juggling act. Yeah, I think I think you'll see <clears throat> from Biden continuity, total continuity in America's approach, for example, to the South China Sea. Um, the, the, the stance has changed. He will inherit from Trump a view that China's got to be seen as a strategic rival or challenger. Um, he will look, and he said this, and the people around him have said it, he'll look at expanding areas of cooperation with China, pandemic management, and climate. And that's, I think, very promising for the world and a challenge to Australia, which is not saying net zero emissions is our policy by 2050. Um, I think he's likely to say more about human rights because that's the way the Democrats will take it, whereas Trump has said virtually nothing about human rights in respect of Hong Kong or the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. I think Biden will maintain the technological warfare with China and put pressure on allies to line up with that. But as I said earlier, there will be areas of cooperation on trade, it's not clear what he would do. Trump has tried to build advantages for American exporters with China, and he's got the Chinese committed to, and I think buying more American agricultural exports. Well, that, that's going to crowd out Australian exports already under pressure because China appears to be punishing us for being the, the lead among America's allies in taking China on. You've mentioned two very important um, things, I think, climate and China. Um, 
But I was just wondering, is there any other notable reason, um, reasons that you think, like we as Australians, obviously the four of us here are very invested in politics and foreign policy anyway, so we were always going to be watching this election. But um, I think um, just regular Australians, why should we be invested in this in the US election? Because of the evidence of American decline or deterioration. When you've got, when you've got, and I quote a poll, um, from an academic called Bartels, um, political scientist at Vanderbilt, that probably identifies it. On August the 31st, it produced a report based on polls of, of Republican voters and Republican-leaning independents. And he said this, and in order to disturb all Australians, most Republicans, January 2020, agreed with the proposition that, quote, the, the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that we may have to use force to save it, unquote. Now, that's a majority of Republican voters agreeing with that proposition. We may have to use force to preserve the American way of life. And, and more than 40% went further. They agreed with the proposition that, quote, the time will come when patriotic Americans have to take the law into their own hands, unquote. Now, that's deeply disturbing. And Bartels argues this is driven by what he describes as ethnic antagonism. He's not using the, the cliche racism. He's saying ethnic antagonism, which might be a, a more useful shorthand description. So I'd recommend you look at that and look at what might be described as identity politics on the other side. This points to two things. This points to one thing, a huge cultural rift opening up in America, that producing two consequences. One, deep political polarization that's probably unbridgeable and that America hasn't suffered from since the late 60s, or probably, you could argue, the pre-Civil War decade of the 1850s. And second, political polarization, and second, political deadlock in Washington. No administration being able to get its legislation through. That, by the way, is one reason tonight um, we ought to be looking, we ought to be looking at what happens in, in the Senate. I think that's an important part of this. If, if Biden is going to be elected, then uh, then uh, seeing him back with a uh, a Senate majority is going to be important. If I may just ask follow up, what's your? Do you think he will attain a Senate majority? I've got to say on the evidence. We were looking at last week, this week, and last no, last week, last week. It was encouraging. Here's a qualification, um, and that is that generally a state goes with the Senate uh, the way it goes on the vote for president. So the. The, the, the high democratic hopes, for example, of getting um, two seats in Georgia, we're alone among the states. There are two seats for up, up for grabs. 
um, or North Carolina, um, Colorado to a lesser extent, um, probably depends, and a couple of Midwestern states probably depends on whether Biden is polling more nationally, polling more in those states than Trump is. Yeah. Um, you're someone who has uh, been around and been very involved and studied a lot of US politics. I was wondering if a lot of people are calling this this election, you know, the biggest election of our time. It's very important. Why, what do you think separates this election? Why is this more important than any of the past ones, if you do agree with that? Yeah. Well, well, as a, a sort of amateur historian, I, I steer away uh, from saying most important election ever. I mean, that's to, to overlook elections of 1916 or 1940 that were, were, were going to determine whether America entered world wars or the election of 1932, um, which determined how America would deal with the, the depression. Um, so I don't think, I don't, I, I think we should steer away from using that. It's, it's a historical to make that declaration. Every age wants to say it's facing deeper problems than any other age. Um, but I think what you can say counts here is that is that Trump is a deeply radical president. He's a demagogue, a populist with authoritarian, sometimes fascist instincts. Um, he's taken over the Republican Party, which makes him extraordinarily significant historically. This determines whether whether he gets a second term in which he will be bolder still about America first policies and building his populist brand and consolidating even further, if that's possible, uh, his grip on the Republican Party. So he's remaking American party politics and he's going to potentially promote an American first foreign policy and trade agenda and entrench it. And I think it would be hard, it'd be hard to, to, to get back to any traditional view, post-war view of America's global role after that. I've got the next question, if that's fine. Sorry, guys. Um, so in relation to the vote, it is obviously going to be coming in very, very slowly, um, like you said. From your perspective as working at um, being our foreign minister, what does that, what would that, what would be the implications of that in relation to the attitudes of various foreign ministries, various governments? Would there be a sense of worry? Um, uncertainty, or would it be un quite understandable due to the circumstances? The thing that worries foreign ministries around the world is the unpredictability of Trump. Um, his instincts can have him shoot off and do just about anything. So, a standout example would be uh, the North Korea his dealings with the, uh, the North Korean leadership 
um, without consultation with South Korea or with Japan. Um, another example would be um, appearing to abandon the Kurds in, uh, in Syria. Um, his contempt for NATO had France and Germany are very alarmed. So I would, I would, I would think it'd be the near universal position of foreign ministries across the globe that Biden offers far more predictability. Okay. Yeah, and that's and that also. I think the other odd thing I was going to ask just in relation to that, does that also go down to his vice, him obviously being vice president, but could you, con sorry, I should have phrased this a lot better. You've got him, you've got Biden who was the vice president under the Obama administration, but you've also had four years with the President Trump already. Do you think that President Trump is a lot more predictable than he was four years ago? Or do you think that it's still a bit of a wild card in that sense? I, I think it's still a wild, wild card, Ryan, because if he's re-elected, he's likely to promote people who, who accept his vision of a America first and not, not to work at bringing in people with a traditional national security policy like um, uh, Mattis, who served as his Secretary of Defence for a while. Um, there could be wilder appointments. Um, would he be capable of giving Steve Bannon a pardon, for example, and appointing, appointing him to a senior role? It sounds mad. Um, would he sack, but, 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 but something you couldn't exclude altogether. Would he, would he sack the head of the FBI? Would we go through that again? Um, no, I think I think that the world of diplomacy is going to be thinking of him being more unpredictable if he gets a second term. Um, I think final question probably from us. Um, you spoke about that America first Trump rhetoric. If he is re-elected, what does that mean for Australia? What does that mean for our relations with America? Will we be left behind? Should we try and stick around? What would your predictions be of what happens there? I think, I think Australians would be alarmed that America was less dependable. That you could cut a deal with China on trade, you could cut a deal with China on, on big strategic questions. Um, I think Australians would find a Biden victory more reassuring, but he would challenge us, the Australian government, on climate. Um, that's probably all you can say about it. No one can fill in the gaps. We just do not know what a re-elected Trump would do. Yeah, and I think that's the worry in the end. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us live and taking your time in this very important day. Is there anything you would like to promote or talk about or say just as a final message? No, let's, let's keep in touch though. I'd be very happy to revisit it with you down the track, say in another six months, when we can see how a re-elected Trump or a Biden has performed in office. Yes, it'll be very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Bob Carr, everybody. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that episode of Atlas. Atlas is the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society, or MIAS. MIAS is an apolitical student society at Monash University, Clayton, that works towards establishing a network for students passionate about international affairs and relations. To become a member to get access to MIAS perks and events, such as our Model United Nation workshops, our roundtables featuring experienced diplomats, and our fun social events, go to portal.msa.monash.edu. Sign in, go to Buy Club Membership, select MIAS, and fill out your personal details. You can follow Myas on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all of which are linked in the description, or visit our website at myas.org.au. If you have a question from today's episode, or are interested in appearing on a future episode, please send an email to communications at myas.org.au. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>